And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so you, yes, well, Jonathan uh, had a more interesting evening last night than I did, so uh, I'm, I'll, I'll start off this one by, by saying, how, how are you feeling uh, this morning in Perth? A little seedy, to be really honest with you, Gary. You know, I was, I was up till four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And I'm, 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 I had about five and a half hours sleep, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm okay, but let's not pretend that anyone. You know, if you're listening out there, don't. Um, let's not say you're going to get any kind of br- brilliance from my end today. It'll be like, we'll get, we'll get to the end of this one. As, well, as we, we sit two weeks away from episode five hundred, we're, we're we're getting close to episode five hundred, and we could. The thing that occurs to me is that. Uh, just uh, with these short podcasts, which I don't know if you schedule them the way I do, but I just schedule two or three at once and pop up an idea hits. And so mm-hmm. I've got I've got one more uh, scheduled. I'll schedule some more. And um, I forgot the point I was going to make by mentioning that. Was it um, going to be that it's like having a bar con or was it something else? Well, I mean, I think it is like having a bar con to that extent. And I've been, we've been told that by some friends of ours, yeah. that this is the kind of conversation you would have. It's also the kind of conversation you have with people who, um, and you've met people like this, and they're my favorite people at conventions. People who you may not have talked to in years, and it feels like you talked to them an hour earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. You can pick up the conversation, pick up, I was talking today with, with uh, Maureen McHugh, who, uh, plug for, a, 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 I think, a piece of news that appears in the podcast, which will appear that she's finished her new novel in, first novel in 19 years, I think. That's fabulous. Uh, which is terrific. Uh, and I don't know the last time I talked to Maureen at all. I know every time I've talked to her, it's been delightful. And this just felt like, okay, I saw you at the bar last week, and here we are at the bar again. Um, except yep. I don't know that she hangs out at bars, so don't anybody <laughs> Yeah, well, look, it is. It's it's been. We've said it before. It's it's a great experience doing these things, and I'm glad we're back doing them after a bit of a break. The little part of me goes, in January, I never thought we would be get closing in on 500 episodes this, like so quickly, and now I'm a little worried. We're going to aim for a thousand. Hmm? What what number were we at at the beginning of the year? Oh, 340 something or like something. That. You know, whatever it was. I mean, I could, I could look it up. Take me two, two seconds. I'll look it up. But it was, it was something like episode three hundred and forty or something. Which, look, I don't pretend that it means anything. You know, they're just numbers and all that. What means something is we've had a chance to get out and talk to people, and I think that it's been a bit of a three hundred and sixty-two was the first episode of the mm-hmm. year. Um, it's been a chance to snapshot the year a bit in a different way. You know, it uh, is, and and I think we. Uh, one of the things I realize is that you get um, talking to as many people as we do. And in the last month, I think I have talked to more people than I would have at any given con. And I suspect you have, too. Mm. And it's 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 not the kind of conversation that gets interrupted by uh, somebody coming up and, and, and asking for an autograph, not from me, but for the other person. That would and be so disturbing on, on Skype, I've got to tell you. It would be very disturbing on Skype, and somebody will figure out a way to do it sooner or later. <laughs> they I mean, so far, Zoom, don't they? Well, pe- people, people can photobomb, they can, what is it, Zoom bombing, they call it, I guess. Mm. Um, and anyway. that probably is a way to Skype bomb as well, but they haven't figured us out. And, well, no, we're not interesting enough to Skype bomb. That is a relief. Uh, our, our ambient level of interest is what will save us, Gary. Let's make it even more boring uh, than than it could be otherwise, because you had suggested to me that yeah. 
No, you had a topic. No, I've, I've given I've given some thought to this topic. Awesome. The topic this topic you uh, suggested to me was I think it was unloading the cannon. Well, Un- yeah, or or maybe I don't know. What is the expression? Unloading, dismounting, uh, setting aside. Whatever it, it depends might be. on whether depends on whether or not you spell cannon as a weapon or as a body of work. True, but true. Either and, way, it works well. What did mm, you mean by this idea? Okay, of, I, uh, most of the people who listen to the podcast, a lot of them are active in the science fiction community, so they'll be well aware well, of the, the discussion, the debate going on at the moment. Um, lots of people are going to be familiar with the disc- what happened in at, at the Zealand Hugo ceremonies, where right. there's a lot of talk about history that uh, let's be polite a lot of people could have done without hearing again and then there was a discussion that flowed on and there was quite a passionate post i thought on john scalzi's blog i don't know if you saw it called i think uh, something to the effect of Mm. oh crap we're talking about canon again yes and and we've cycled circled this subject a number of times before too and if you like in a way the i think the most common way i see it addressed is that Oh, you know, canon feels like it's what you have to read, and why are we telling people they have to read? Nobody, nobody has to read anything. This is ridiculous. Blah blah right. blah. All of which is fine. And I guess what I began to think about was this: right, what useful purpose to science fiction does the idea of a canon uh, serve? Um, to what extent do we actually understand in a useful way? What, what a canon is, and are we misusing it within the context of science fiction? And bluntly, is science fiction itself, modern science fiction, old enough to even be having this conversation? All of which are good questions, all of which go back to the idea of canon. I guess the term originally was literally what goes into the Bible and what doesn't go into the Bible, uh, which was, I guess, a pretty important, Pretty at that time was a fairly important set of decisions, since you were going to basically wage wars and oppress people for the next thousand years based on what you decided to include in the Bible. Can I just say um, that's not, not doesn't sound like an argument for it though? But we'll move on. I'm not making an argument for but, canon at all. Not for canon as a list of things. You can define canon. One simple way of defining canon is it's a list of books that other people tell you to read. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the list of books you want to read. And I think some of the outrage uh, at regarding uh, Campbell or Asimov, the classic Golden Age, Gernsback, that, that some, some of the reaction uh, to that as a canon is entirely b- valuable uh, because it's, um, it's not everybody's canon. It was never everybody's canon. I mean, the idea, for example, of um, I was looking at uh, Adam Roberts' history of science fiction. Mm-hmm. And a British writer and critic, very bright, both at being a writer and critic. And it was clear from his perspective and the perspective of other um, British historians of the genre, like uh, uh, Brian Stableford's one example, that that whole American pulp canon isn't part of what they grew up with. You know, they grew up they grew up reading uh, Wells. They grew up reading Mary Shelley. Yes, but in the '30s, they you know the books from the '30s were. Um, of Stapleton and that sort of thing. So the, the scientific romance canon is a completely mm-hmm. different set of texts. Uh, a lot of people are going back now and looking at the missing uh, women from mm-hmm. the history of science fiction. Perfectly valid thing to do. I suspect if there were a way to do it, uh, people would be tracking down the missing pieces of uh, 
of, of LGBTQ writers, but we don't know who they were, and it's very difficult to find out at this point. It's difficult to find out which writers might have been people of color. Uh, but I think that's kind of a foolish way of going about it, because what you're trying to do is to include people into this narrowly defined canon. And my argument is that canon isn't a list of books that you have to read. It's a list of books that help define the community you feel part of. A social by canon. It's a, it's a kind of social canon. It's created by, uh, in the case of this, this uh, you know, Asimov, Campbell, Heinlein canon, that was, as you look at the history of fandom, that was the canon for that community. And that community were mostly white, male, young uh, readers, the same people who organized uh, the first uh, science fiction conventions that we know about, the science fiction conventions that have been canonized, for example. The thing there is right. I mean, if you were to argue, and it's reasonable, that the, the Gernsback continuum canon is the mm -hmm. canon of the Futurians and their friends, right? Mm -hmm. the, the grasp for credibility for the canon that they attempt is to say that there was an objective fact to it, you know, that their works are truly canonical because either they were the best-selling of their time or they were the first of their kind in that, that context, those kind of things. Mm. And I'm not sure that I find that helpful or valuable or even necessarily valid. I mean, you can't argue that something wasn't the best-selling science fiction novel of 1961, but I think you can argue that in attempting to make that a value judgment rather than simply a um, objective observation, you miss everything else that happened around that. You uh, omit things like, well, what about the people who didn't get a chance to partake because they were so discouraged by the way everything mm -hmm. ran? What about the people who could have been writing, would have been writing? What about the people who did write who you overlooked because of whatever reason? You know, and I think that undercuts that canon. I think what makes canon toxic for most people, mm -hmm. and I would have to say that I see it more than I feel it because I'm inside the protective box. We say this over and over again, right? We're both mm -hmm. middle-aged, older white guys, and so if you're inside that bubble, then, hey, right, it doesn't bother you as much immediately because... It's, 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 it's not something you have to be aware of. But um, I think it's the fact that it becomes by its nature exclusionary. You know? well, that's the point. That's exactly the point. And I think the idea, the approach that things which have been excluded from the canon now ought to be folded into it in some way is a mistaken way of looking at, at, at the whole idea. I mean, by and large, uh, you know, kidnapping uh, writers of the six kidnapping new age writers. J.G. Ballard would never have wanted to be part of the same quote canon as uh, A.E. Van Vogt or, or Heinlein sure. for that. Uh, and 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 yet, were he alive today, uh, he might very well feel as though he'd been kidnapped into a canon he never wanted to be part of. My point is that trying to move people into the canon is a mistake because the canon is a narrow historical thing in, in, in the first place. There are other, there, in other words, there are many canons. As I say, I think they're defined by your community of readers. And it's not as simple as saying there's a, a, a canon of 
uh, of feminist science fiction or a canon of uh, genderqueer science fiction. There, there might eventually evolve something like that. But I was one of the panels I was listening to at um, uh, Con, Con Zealand, uh, which dealt, it, it didn't deal specifically with canon, uh, but it was a young, nebula-winning, uh, very bright, very popular writer who said she had read almost none of Le Guin. <clears throat> and I thought, my first thought, my old world thought was, how can you not have read Le Guin? And then I thought, well, if we're saying to people you don't need to read Heinlein, then no, you don't need to read Le Guin. But if you want to read Le Guin, if you want to be part of that community, uh, then if you want to understand what the history of um, gender in science fiction is, what the history of women in science fiction is, what uh, what the is and, and, and history of uh, radical political thought in science fiction is, you might want to read Le Guin. But forcing Le Guin into a canon that started with Heinlein and Asimov doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, I don't think it does either. Um, because I really... I guess... I ask myself, what's the purpose of this thing? You know, who's it for? I mean, you talk, you, you mm. talk you know, clearly and cogently and persuasively about canon being about community, but, you know, it seems to me that it comes about from one of two impulses. One is just simply to be able to say, here are some great books you should be aware of. And another that seems to be about insecurity about the genre and wanting to assert its worth by saying, here are the great texts of science fiction. We've been doing modern science fiction for... A hundred years, surely there must be great texts. What are the great texts? Here they are. And then, understandably, first of all, people come along and go, well, I didn't read you. Well, I read you great text, and guess what? Sucked, right? That, that guy uh -huh. couldn't write character to save his life. His settings were rubbish. And you're sort of going, oh, well, thank you very much. I wanted, my, I wanted you to lo lo love what I love too. Mm -hmm. It then comes into this idea of canon and influence. And influence, I think, is the most misused part of this kind of thing i do think people use canon in a, or can use canon in a controlling way and i think that's toxic and i think it's a, you know something we have to fight against and it's why by and large we should as much as possible resist the urge to create canon but um people assume that you were talking to this, this writer who said was saying she had not read mm. Le Guin, right that doesn't mean she's not influenced by Le Guin, though probably exactly. she may not to put words in her mouth and try to be careful that but she may assert that she wasn't but I've found, for example, that if you talk to someone and say, have you read uh, Heinlein? And they go, no, not read Heinlein, not influenced by Heinlein, mm -hmm. Patui. And you're going, have you read Connie Willis? Yes, big influence on me. And you're going, well, you can't read Connie Willis without getting some flavor of the influence of Heinlein because Heinlein's right. locked into the background of what Connie Willis does. Uh, yes. You can't read Arcadie Martin without getting locked into the influence of C.J. Cherry and who came before her and who influenced her, which included whoever it was, right? Mm. So this kind of thing, it's we look for direct influence, but in some ways, particularly for older texts, older writers, their, their influence is baked in. You know, I don't particularly think, for example, that the Forever War, right, is out there mm. immediately influencing a whole bunch of new writers. The book came out in 1975, I think, right? It's had mm. 45 years of knocking around in science fiction. And there are major, major um, military science fiction texts that have come out since the Forever War that were written by people who never read the Forever War, right? And that's people true. say, well, that's plainly influenced by, you know, the Forever War. And you're like, no. But 
enough people read the Forever War, and then you read them, and you read like, and you know, Joe Joe Holderman had was aware of and had read Starship Troopers, and whether he was responding to it directly or not, that influenced it. So guess what? You're getting to this thing where yes, I mean, like if you're reading if you read know, Old Man's War by John Scalzi, you're being influenced by Heinlein. Mm-hmm. Right? And Scalzi would uh, cheerfully uh, own up to that. I, he, he said that many times. I think what you're doing though is you're describing. Uh, something else, which is our old friend Charles Brown's way of talking about science fiction. You're talking about the conversations that go on in science fiction. Uh, the idea that uh, you have a second or third generation conversation about, let's say, military science fiction or anti-war science fiction. Uh, and so, yeah, the original text may be way back in, in, in prehistory somewhere. The question is, do you have to read those original texts? And, and my point is, as we've said no. every time we come up with this, is no, you don't have to read anything. I mean, you know, the uh, other okay. argument, yeah, sorry, go ahead. The, the other argument, which I've heard as long as we're talking about the argument for reading the classics, and there certainly are lots of arguments for reading any history of literature, for reading back in the history of anything you like to read. But the other argument is that science fiction, you might reinvent the wheel. You might mm-hmm. just write a story that's already been written. So you have to know that to me is a pulp writer's kind of nightmare when it, it defines science fiction as nothing but clever plot ideas. Uh, the yeah, reinventing uh, the wheel argument, it just... The, the idea thing is not, it's not anywhere near as convincing as it sounds it is. It's this kind of slick, facile thing that says, yeah, there are only so many ways of getting a spaceship off the ground. So if you haven't yeah. read so-and-so, well, then you're just copying them. Now, I, I actually think one of the reasons that we, that we are consumed by this argument has nothing to do with science fiction writers writing science fiction. It has everything to do with non-science fiction writers writing science fiction. Because they're the ones who pick these, t- tend to pick up the simple, obvious uh, things and then sit there and go, guess what? I had this idea for a thing. There's a planet and it's made out of desert and it's got these big worms on it. No one had that idea before. Oh, I'm clever. And you're going, that looks kind of silly now, Bob. Um, but to say that, you know, I mean, you're, for start, your average, okay. Your average science person coming into science fiction or fantasy or horror to write genre fiction. In fact, your average person writing genre fiction reads genre fiction. They may not read the genre fiction that everybody would think they should, but they read genre fiction. Otherwise, they wouldn't not write it. So, and that means that they are by osmosis picking up all kinds of things. I mean, we've talked about the success of science fiction media on the podcast Mm. over the last decade at times. And how what were fairly obtuse or in 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 in, 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 in inside you know the, the locker ha- locker room kind of ideas have been mainstreamed to, you know by movies and television. So now abstract ideas around time travel and whatever else yeah. are just sure. Of course, yeah, we get that idea completely because we've been watching this and we've been watching that. It's all communicated to us now, and. It's the same thing in science fiction within the thing. These ideas are around. And then somebody comes in. And so when, I mean, when R.F. Quang comes along and writes The Poppy War, mm. well, Rebecca's influenced by all kinds of people, but they're probably not the people you'd expect. And no. that's that's cool, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and ma- maybe one of the problems, yeah, part of the problem, this conversation is part of the problem. And I acknowledge <laughs> that. I'll tell you, what, I'll tell you why. Um in attempting again to set aside the idea of canon, which, and I have to say, 
and acknowledging my personal failing because I'm still kind of attracted to the idea. I kind of like the idea of being able to say, these are actually the, the great books of science fiction. I like that idea. It doesn't mean that it's valuable to anybody else. It certainly doesn't mean I want anybody else to read them unless you come along to me and say, hey, you got a great book to recommend. I'm going to go, go read Air by mm. Jeff Ryman. That's a great book, right? But we don't seem to be able to shake off the idea of canon. And obviously the reason that it is germane right now is that what we're trying to do is change the way people within science fiction interact with one another and who we who we include make the genre that much more inclusive so part of being able to do that is cleaning house on the canon again and so on one hand by talking about it i think we make it a little worse but we also have to try and like puncture that balloon again at least in our space well and i think some of this has to do with a kind of simplistic version of of literary history as progress in other words uh the idea that each generation writes better, more sophisticated uh, fiction than the generation before, which is, a, it's a Victorian idea. It's a, it's, it's a very primitive idea of progress that, you know, uh, and, and the, the kind of potted history of science fiction, unfortunately, the one that uh, George Martin was echoing during his uh, talks during the Hugo mm -hmm. Awards, were that, uh, okay, there's, there's pulp fiction, there's, uh, there, there's this kind of didactic, let's uh, teach science through fiction that Gernsback wanted, and then he started buying wild-eyed uh, Doc Smith stories, and then people thought, well, okay, let's, let's think more rationally about the future, and this is supposedly where Campbell came in. So, so you have this primitive story which gets a little bit more sophisticated, which gets more realistic, which grows up and gets better and better and better as it goes on. The problem is, there's no end point to that. And the second problem is that some of those classic uh, hard science fiction stories, and this is going to sound probably, I don't know, uh, antithetical to what a lot of old people like me believe, some of those old crazy pulp stories by Doc Smith are more fun than the rational, cool stories of Isaac Asimov. Some things that are excluded from the canon are really kind of cool. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and so therefore there isn't any way of of uh, of limiting of, of of defining something as amorphous as as, as a canon. Yeah. yeah. The the idea to, to go back to the idea uh, uh, theory the theory that uh, you're right science fiction uh, popular writers will reinvent science fiction things they don't reinvent them they've they've absorbed them as you said through pop media we've had everything from um, the Back to the Future movies to The Expanse, tutoring the mass of popular culture audiences into the goings about of science fiction. Everybody knows what a space opera is now. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows how time travel works. Uh, so the idea of reinventing something shouldn't be a concern anymore. You don't have to read the history of science fiction to avoid repeating it, because repeating it is perfectly worthwhile. The idea of reinventing the wheel. Uh, Think about that. That's a terrible metaphor. It's a terrible <laughs> metaphor for anything. I mean, if, 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 wheels, if, if wheels didn't get reinvented, our cars would have spokes. Um, <laughs> and, and to take one idea that I've written about uh, a couple of times, go back to the Generation Starship idea, yep. which gets reinvented every generation. It, did, it was not invented by, by Heinlein. There are pulp stories by Simak and others in the 30s that deal with this. And Heinlein dealt with it as a kind of metaphor of the, the scientific, the Copernican revolution, I suppose. 
Um, but then later people come along. Brian Aldiss writes a social satire in his version of it. Harry Harrison writes a kind of socialist uh, experiment in stable versus revolutionary societies in Captive Universe. And uh, Stan Robinson decides to use it as an ecological argument that you cannot build a, you, mm-hmm. you cannot build an artificially sustained environment. And more, more recently than that, River Solomon uses the same idea uh, to, to explore power and gender and slavery and neuroatypical characters in a way that's completely original. All of these people have reinvented that wheel and every story has been completely new. Yeah, it's true. No, it's completely true. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I think, yeah, I think the thing with, with it, and it kind of circles around, and maybe because I was up late last night, but I, um, it, it's the canon as, as a closing door that's concerning, you know? Yeah. To, to shut people out, to lock things in. And, and the idea as well, uh, and this is sort of important, I suppose, that just because you put a book on that shelf, if you see it as, as, as a physical shelf, um, doesn't mean it can't come off. Well, it can come off, but the other thing that worries me about putting a book like that on the shelf is that um, for a lot of readers, and I probably would have been one of these, I probably was one of these when I was a kid before I mm-hmm. went to college and so forth, Putting a book on a shelf called Canon is an invitation to a lot of people to not read it. Oh, yeah. Um, like, I'm, I, there's the number of people who have said, I am never going to read Moby Dick because I've been told my whole life I have to read Moby Dick. Fine. You know, they, they can go to their graves without having read Moby Dick. And you know what? They will be fine. have as had fulfilling a life as, as the rest of us. Uh, there's a classic example. Okay, the Canon, another way of looking at the Canon, when it was defined in terms of Western literature in general. There was a project uh, that was, I think, started by a guy named Mortimer Adler at the University of Chicago back in the 30s called mm-hmm. The Great Books. And they were going around. They were selling bound mm. copies of the great books from Plato through Spinoza through, I think it probably went up through William James and maybe even Freud at the end. Um, and these were books that you were supposed to have in every household. People would sell them door to door. The only thing is the people who put the thing together were using the only translations that they didn't have to pay for for these classic works, which meant Mm -hmm. they were paying for translations that were in the public domain, which means they were paying largely for these god-awful Victorian translations that made the classics virtually unreadable. Mm -hmm. So so you ended up with, at least in the States, uh, I don't know if this went on around the world or not, you ended up with thousands of households having uh, sets of the great books, which if anybody pulled them off and tried to read them would immediately bounce right off of them because they were turgid and badly mm. translated. And, uh, and, and, and in other words, by paying for the cheapest translations, you created a set of books that nobody wanted to read. And I, I remember I getting copies of them. I didn't have a whole set of them, but I remember looking at, uh, some of these, uh, things, the Jawa translation of Plato was one of them. And I was thinking, these these old guys were really, really boring. <laughs> uh, and, and and years later, when somebody rediscovered Plato, if you if you translate it and read it as drama, it's kind of exciting. It really yeah. is the Platonic yeah. dialogues. But this is what canon does. It it's it, it puts a sign on a shelf of books saying, these are really going to bore you to death. So stay away from them and go read something fun. <laughs> What do you make of the related 
argument about this kind of thing that you can't on you can't undermine what was the actual historical role of a text you know so for example you might say there's the Gernsback continuum that we talk about yeah. and and when black destroyer was published in 1939 by a van vogt it really was the first kind of space opera story of its type so ergo whether it's good bad or indifferent it remains historically significant Historically significant is fine for people who are list, uh, who are interested in, in in literary history. I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, comes up in, in in mysteries: Do you have to read Wilkie Collins? Do you have to go back and find possibly some 18th century mm-hmm. mystery text? And then it turns out that in Chinese literature, you can find mystery stories from, I guess, several hundred years ago. Uh, for people who are interested in the history of a field, absolutely, it's fun to go back and read those things. It's exciting to discover something. Uh, as that's older than you thought it was. And frequently those things are, are, are entertaining. Uh, frequently they're pretty awful. I mean, I, um, <laughs> uh, non-canonical works from history can be as fun to dip into as the canonical works. I'll give you an example. Dracula is a very good novel. Mm-hmm. I have no argument with Dracula. It, it, it's sophisticated. It uses multiple points of view. It uses even uses reference to modern technology and so forth. It's a really classic vampire story. But several years ago, Dover, who classically reprinted everything they could get their hands on, thanks to Everett Blyler, reprinted Varney the Vampire, a printed <laughs> dreadful from the 1830s, I think, in which and it's it's unreadably awful, but <laughs> for the same reason, it's huge amounts of fun. Yeah. Because you get a sense, okay, this is what this is what the splatterpunk of the 1830s was like. And you can kind of, if you get into it, you can merge yourself into that period and realize uh, there have always been, you know, junk splatter movies, except that they were penny dreadful. So, so I think reading literary history is fine, but you don't have to read only George Eliot. If you're going to read Victorian literature, there's a lot of bad Victorian literature that's just as much fun. Fair enough. So tell me, what do you make of, in the context of this conversation, the Golan's masterworks and the Tor Essentials? I like the fact that they're using terms like masterworks and essentials and not actually calling these a canon. Essentials rubs me a little bit the wrong way because it it, it suggests that you need to read these uh, for some vitamin reason of your own you know it makes you healthier to read these it's it's like you know uh, ascorbic acid and i don't want to think i was talking with maureen McHugh today about china mountain zhang it's a very very good novel it, mm-hmm. uh, i was looking at it it hasn't dated at all in uh in 20 some years and it's somehow a, went below the radar a lot of people didn't know about it so bringing a book like that back into uh the field of view, bringing back in, uh, for example, the three Californians of Kim Stanley Robinson. Those things need to be exposed to a new audience. That's not the same thing as saying a new audience has to read them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, for example, a lot of people, given what we're uh, looking at now in terms of character-based science fiction, uh, in which characters, I'm thinking of China Mountain Zhang in particular, it's an unusual kind of science fiction. The characters are simply surviving in a dystopian community. They're not changing the world. They are not science fiction heroes. They are not revolutionaries. They're not Galileo. They're people trying to survive in a very uh, kind of grim 
future. And that's, that's a mainstream novel. That's a mainstream novel with a science fiction setting. From a technical point of view, I would argue that McHugh was ahead of her time in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of thing needs to be available. It needs to be uh, something that you can get your hands on. Yeah. So making the books available is important. But there's a big, big gap between making these books available for people who might be interested in them and saying, you don't know anything about science fiction if you haven't read these. Oh, enormous, enormous difference. I mean, yeah, th- though you are making a a claim for the value of the texts, that they have continuing yeah. currency. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I'm not saying that's an invalid thing or that I don't like either of the two programs that we're talking about. Uh, I do know people who will go, oh, well, I will go. I know people who've bought every single Golan's masterwork because then they have mm-hmm. the library of science fiction. And part of me doesn't want to burst their bubble and go, well, actually, the Golan's masterworks, which includes, includes some great books and some less great books, by and large, is kind of like. Golance's reprint line with the books they already have the rights to because they don't generally acquire rights to new books for them so, or re- retypeset them or anything. Right. Though they have, but they don't generally. Um, so it's not quite as grandiose as it could it could be made to appear. And I, I don't feel any, any hunger for something to be more grandiose, you know? So I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable, but, but I like them more than I don't. I like them as a library of science fiction. Several mm-hmm. years ago, I, I got... Um, uh, a copy, uh, uh, most of the um, Eastern Press reprints, well, beautifully bound reprints of uh, all kinds of uh, science fiction classics, uh, which if, if, if I look at the titles now, not all those books are classics at all. They were, they were things that the editor of the series liked. They were things they could get permission for. Uh, there were odd choices in them. Uh, but I like having a set of books that represents uh, a view of science fiction. But that's all any canon can do. It's all any selection of books can do is represent a view of science fiction, um, which is fine. I mean, the, the, the problem is nobody anymore gets to dominate that view. Yeah. Nobody so, owns it. So how do I recommend great books to other readers in the field without making them feel like they're trapped by those recommendations? Well, you must get this question more than I do. I mean, I get it as a reviewer and a critic, as an academic. You must get it as an editor where somebody says, I, a friend of yours, a, a relative says, I, I don't know this stuff you're involved in. Where should I start? And my response is always, what do you like to read? Sure. Um, and if, 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 somebody, if somebody likes Sherlock Holmes mysteries, I might very well send them to Asimov's robot stories because they're kind of cool, logical puzzles. Um, if somebody likes, um, let's just say, because I've, I've had this conversation with friends who read mysteries, people who like to read, I don't know, Ross MacDonald and uh, Dashiell Hammett might be a little bit more comfortable with cyberpunk kinds of uh, things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, I, I can't think of just coming up with a list of stories you have to read without no, knowing no. who you are. Well, yeah, well, yeah. Well, look, I don't think I don't think I don't think I've ever been a you have to read person, uh, and I don't think that you have in the time of of knowing you've been the person who goes like you have to read X. Other than, I guess that flush of enthusiasm where I read this really great book and you got to read it. It's great. 
right? Well, I think there is that, yeah. And I've done that too, knowing who you are. For example, uh, I've had uh, this conversation. I had this conversation with somebody not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And we were talking We were talking about uh, writers of this quote-unquote golden age. And I was talking about uh, C.L. Moore's No Woman Born, mm-hmm. which I think is an amazing story. It deals with gender. It deals with attitudes toward women's bodies. It deals. It's an enormously sophisticated story. And I was saying to this person, if you're interested in this kind of thing, if you're interested in essentially the history of women's bodies in science fiction, which is mm-hmm. what we were talking about, God knows what reason— that's a story which I think you'd find really enlightening. Mm-hmm. But to say that I think you'd really like this story or I'd like to talk to you about this story when you read it is, again, qualitatively different from saying you have to read this or never speak to me again. Yeah, well, yes. And I, I realize that the thing that, um, the thing that kicked off this particular conversation is an, an event where someone's saying, you know, well, it, actually what I think it is is... is it looks like someone's going. Here's here is the narrative, the the insider story of things, and how it really happened. When to some degree, what it is is it's like saying, it's actually more like a hey, see that I th- that I was on the inside a little bit, so I know these stories, and mm. I would like to still be relevant. So here's the context in which I think I'll, I'll still be relevant. So hey, and it's that kind of gasp of, you know, of, of a quest for relevance rather than anything important or valuable, and the the the, the the tragic, the sadness, because I mean, it's not important enough to be a tragedy, but the sadness of the 2020 Hugo ceremony is that it completely lost track of what it was really for, right? Because the Hugo Awards ceremony, and we can overvalue these things and talk about them too much, but the Hugo Awards ceremony, to my mind, is about today and tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's about those people who have written works that are being nominated and are being awarded right now. Uh, not stuff that came out before, and who's being involved going forward. So, you know, it was Arcady Martin's story, you know, it really was. It was, you know, the Nebulas mm-hmm. was A.T. Greenblatt's story and whatever else. Those are the people we should be talking about now. Don't have to lose. I mean, I, I didn't suddenly, like, when I read, what I'm actually reading, I admit, because I'm late to it. When you read A Memory Called Empire, which I would recommend very highly, mm-hmm. right? Great book. Um, I thought, oh, wow. This is plainly, and Arcady said as much on the podcast, this is plainly influenced by C.J. Cherry and Foreigner. And you go, yep, this, is, this is a very, very clearly influenced text. But I don't necessarily mm-hmm. feel anyone has to rush off and read Foreigner. Uh, though, honestly, it's a good book, and I, I do recommend it. I enjoyed it a great deal. Though I couldn't get through all the remaining 20 yeah, follow-on texts. I, you know. I, I, I could not. I, I lost track of... I, I'm, I'm bad at that. I really did a terrible job of keeping up with C.J. Cherry, and I did a terrible job of keeping up with Lois Bujold, but I don't feel bad about it because, I, I, as, as a critic, I should keep up with those things better than I did. But my point is that if you find yourself uh, loving A Memory Called Empire, and that leads you to go back and maybe C.J. Cherry. In other words, books that you love can lead you back to their predecessors, to books that might have mm. influenced them, books that, and, and that's a way of kind of building your own canon, I think. Is finding what you like and finding what else is uh, is out there historically that that might be like it. And I think by that uh, uh, by that measure, you will eventually find yourself um, rediscovering. Well, I go back to China Mountain Zhang is the one I was talking about today, um, and I, I I think that's healthy. The problem with that is, in terms of panel discussions and lists of books, and that's that's the other thing. The uh, 
lists of 101 great science fiction books. Who, whose book was that? Um, oh, do you mean the Michael uh, Moorcock one? No, or not the Michael Moorcock. It, it was not another one you mean, David Pringle. David Pringle, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think he did a hundred science fiction books and a hundred fantasy books and uh, maybe a hundred horror books. I'm not sure. And I love licking in those lists. I, I, I love arguing with them. But the value of them is precisely that. The value of them is looking at a list like that and saying, what on earth are you talking about putting this in there and not putting that in there? Uh, you know, canons are great for starting arguments, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give anybody any of those books and say you have to go through these. True. I mean, yes, I think you've got it right. It's like there's a book that I that I was given ten years ago. I think it's a thousand records you got to listen to before you die, right? That kind of thing. And it was for a while the the perfect toilet read, frankly, um, because it, you know nice short pieces about something. And if, and and here's the thing: if somebody and hey, small press people out there, particularly, if someone did the, the hundred science fiction and fantasy books of the 2000s you have to read. I would totally be interested in reading that book. I think that would be interesting because you're confining it to contemporary books that haven't been canonized yet. And I think looking at that, I mean, the Locust Recommended Reading List does something like this every year. It's a much longer list than what you're talking about. But I was approached, oh, many years ago, more than 20 years ago now, by by the old, uh, well, by, by Martin Greenberg, one of the great anthologists of the field and a, a scholar um, who had uh, a contract with the publisher that he wanted me to do, and it was going to be the 100 foundational science fiction books, I think, or something like that. Mm-hmm. This is a publisher. To give you an example of what they wanted, this publisher had pre, just that year sent published a book called The Jewish 100, which was a <laughs> oh, set of a set of short essays on the 100 most important Jews in history. Um, so, I mean, starting with Jesus and ending up with, I don't know, uh, Israel Zangwill or Einstein and that sort of And I thought, okay, so I'm going to look at the, and I hate to put it this way, but I started getting involved in this and thought, this is, I'm going to do nothing but make enemies with it. Mm. And then to my, endless benefit marty greenberg died and the whole oh, thing no. the whole project that's just awful ended. that's awful decision. so the only the only way out from your can, act of canonization was for someone else to die surely well, there's got to be an easier easier way to duck a shelf of books one, than one, that one, one of the one of the secrets of being an academic critic is you may hate canons but if somebody offers you a lot of money to make one up you'll think about it Oh, look, I, I would imagine that most people, in fact, it, I imagine almost anybody who's been complaining about the canon and science fiction in the last three months, if you offer them a lot of money, would be willing to sit there and go, let me fire up the word processor. I reckon I can get you one by lunchtime. You know? What would be interesting, sure. what would be, interesting would be to take the same period, and you're absolutely right, in the last 20 years, let's say, since 2000, um, how many canons could you come up with? I think the uh, other thing, and mm. I, I noticed that uh, uh, Jess Nevins, who did the Encyclopedia of Fantastic Victoriana, wrote a long kind of uh, Facebook post, which was an alternate history of science fiction, including the women. It included a lot of people that are not read today, like Jane Loudon's The Mummy and so forth, or even Mary Shelley's The Last Man. And it occurred to me, you could take any period of science fiction history and create an alternate canon to the one which is in the standard histories. But even the standard histories are doing that. Now, the, the, this, this sort of astounding canon we're talking about was sort of solidified by 
histories of the field written by Lester Del Rey or written by Sam Moskowitz or uh, written by even Sam Lundvall in, in, in the Sweden. Futurians. The Futurians. And the Futurians. Pretty and much. The, and the enemies of the Futurians, too. I mean, but the point is you could take any given period. If you took a period, let's say, 1940 to 1960, um, and decided, okay, I'm going to come up with a canon of science fiction stories that doesn't include any Heinlein or Asimov or, well, maybe Bradbury, I don't know. Uh, Bradbury doesn't fit into that mold exactly. You could come up with interesting lists of stories. Could you come up with a canon of uh, stories by women? Lisa Yazak very nearly did that with her Future Females anthology. Uh, you, all no, do, do, do you mean a, a canon of science fiction by women for the last hundred years? Or the last well, not, six months. Or, 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 or for any period within there. I'm, I'm just thinking of a 20-year sure. period. Yeah, of course you uh, could. Well, and, and the point is that when you look at that canon, you find out that some stories, like Zena Henderson stories, let's say, are classics. They were beautiful, but they were, they were beautifully structured. There are not very many of them. They all f fall within the same sort of uh, framework. And therefore, she's not been an enormous influence because she wrote a very narrow group of stories. Um, and there are a lot of writers like that who, if you look at their work uh, just in terms of sheer quality, redefine the canon. We've talked yeah. uh, before. I mean, the, the, the kind of standard rationalist view of, um, of, of, of the astounding canon excludes Bradbury. It excludes, excludes Theodore Sturgeon. It excludes good pulp writers like Lee Brackett. It excludes C.L. Moore. Uh, and, and, and yet, from what we know about the people who actually read those magazines at that time, there were readers who loved those stories as much or more. And yeah. I think the same thing's true of, like I say, any 20-year period, 1980 to 2000. It's not all cyberpunk. There's a lot oh, no. of other stuff going on. In no, no, there's, there's countervailing things. I mean, obviously one of the risks with 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 you know, sort of canon and micro canon and nano canons is that, you know, you risk uh, corralling something off into its own niche. I mean, one of yeah. the great things the last 20 years, last 10 years, is that, for example, queer science fiction and fantasy is no longer in any sense anything other than mainstream or doesn't feel like it is. It's right. absolutely center. It's best-selling fiction. It's award-winning fiction. And it is absolutely central to the dialogue in the field, which maybe it was less so t tw 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So you mm. don't want to be corralling stuff off. And I guess we can be glib about it, or I can be glib about it and say, it is tempting to see if you can get a canon of canons, yeah. because that would be amusing. Yeah. But. But. I'm thinking. But. Isn't the big thing really to just kind of set the whole thing aside and get on with it? Get on with reading? Well, and, and, and talking okay, and enjoying and uh, and and also understanding. I mean, the, the 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 one comforting thing in some ways about what happened in you know, uh, in uh, Conzealand is TikTok. You know, time's passing. That's that story is that that dialogue about the field is aging, and will will disappear. Oh, that particular argument is 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 disappearing already. I mean, there's a um, there's a sense in which, for example, you're right. Uh, a, a science fiction in, involving gender queer or neuroatypical protagonist is 
is no longer revolutionary. It shouldn't be. It, it, it should be part of the mainstream of the field. It's become mainstream. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't want to live in a world in which nobody ever reads any science fiction published oh, no. before 2010. No, and, and look, and I realize one of the one of the like the value of the masterworks and those kind of things is we do live in a publishing world where you know, the availability of older texts is is waning. There is the mid list has disappeared, you know, yeah, and so it's harder to find these things. You don't generally go into an, a normal average bookstore and find older books, no matter what genre. Or what kind of book it is, no. you know. The, the it, it's the last five years worth of stuff plus a few other things that they keep it as as as, sent as core texts, and then something else that's dusted off over in the corners, a classic section or that kind of thing. Um, and that's kind of that is something to fight against to try and keep text available because texts do just by the torrent of stuff disappear, and and that is wor worth arguing against or pushing against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 something that bothers me quite a bit. And and the, when I talk to some younger readers who are interested in older texts, that becomes an issue. Prolong's mm. um, masterworks are not that. I don't know if they're available as eBooks in the United States or not, but the texts themselves are not easy to get here. Mm -hmm. um, the um, Penguin Classics series, uh, which started out with a very limited number of titles and some interesting titles, they wanted to include. Um, non-English language science mm -hmm. fiction, for example. But it's a very limited way of doing it, and if they don't do well, then uh, it's not going to be done again. And th this is what bothers me. Uh, every well, few actually, years. actually uh, you, you prompted me, Gary. You uh -huh. came out th this last week or two, I think. Okay. The, the Penguin Classics of Science Fiction came out. Well, they were just announced. Okay, yeah, they're right. They were announced about the time we did our last... They're just, they're, they're just coming out now, I, I believe, and are a really kind of interesting, curious batch of books. You know, I know so, the Hair Carpet Weavers was one of them. What are some of the other titles? I'm looking them up right now, Gary, because I'm not going to pretend that I have them all in front of me. But the, well, okay. there's, 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 there's the book that you talk about on the podcast all the time, mm -hmm. uh, A Voyage to Ar Arcturus by David Lindsay. Mm -hmm. There's The Ark Secura by Kobe Abe. Uh -huh. St uh, which I don't know actually. To be Star Maker by Stapleton, Last and First Men by Stapleton, uh, Ten Thousand Light Years from Home by Tiptree, which I'm delighted to see come yeah. back into a, a into physical print. Uh, Vonnegut's Kurt's Cradle, Angelica Gorodish's Trafalgar, which uh, I think Small Beer originally published. I think they did here with a Le Guin translation, as I recall. Yeah, and no, interesting. This is not that translation. Oh, interesting. Which is very interesting, isn't it? Huh. I didn't realize that until this very second. Uh, flat, it'd be interesting to see, have someone read them both and compare them for us. Uh, Flatland by Edwin Abbott, The Colorado Space by Lovecraft, We by Yevgeny Zamyatian, The Hair Carpet Weavers by Andreas Ashbach, which you mentioned, Lem's Siberiad, A Billion Years to the End of the World by the Strigatskys, and Dimension of Miracles by Robert Sheckley. So um, interesting, huh? I'm, I'm glad to see Sheckley in the list, although it seems to me there's a paucity of women in that list. Oh. Yes, and I think that's an, a, a significant issue. Though we, we, I mean, we we do know. Well, I mean, you got what Garodisher and um, and Tiptree, and Tiptree, yeah. Uh, but yes, I yes, and, and some of it does have that sense of we have these books. You know, like to have, to have put, I think it's what, three Stapleton titles into it suggests we had the rights to some Stapleton, so we'll put that out. Well, this is always an issue, and it's, it's, of it's one it of the things. Where it is. I mean, it, 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 you, you've seen this uh, in, 
in your years best. I've seen it with the Library of America stuff where, where, where you basically get, um, well, carefully uh, advised as to what you should have done. And <laughs> it turns out what you should have done is something you could not get the rights to. Mm. Um, and, and so that's always an issue with that sort of thing. I mean, there is the issue. Stapleton is, um, I think, worth looking at uh, for anybody interested in, in ideas about science fiction. They're not, they're not novels in any conventional sense, except possibly for uh, the, the later ones, like the, the, uh, the novel about the dog. What's mm -hmm. But, um, but as, as I think um, Stephen Baxter said, Every page is like a dozen plots. So if you're somebody interested in science fiction, just read a few pages of Stapleton. You don't have to read it, the whole thing through. Uh, he was just a mine of ideas for people. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's useful to bring things like that into print because people do have an interest in reading into the past. And I don't think uh, for a minute, and I'm, I'm, I may be uh, misprisioning what uh, Roberta Quang said, or what Jeanette Ng said, but I don't think they meant to say we shouldn't read any of the past of science oh, fiction. Oh, no, no, at all. I wouldn't have taken it that way. They were, they, were, they were saying this is a limited, narrow, uh, really kind of dyspeptic view of science fiction history, yeah. which, as, as, as Jeanette carefully pointed out, was a view that uh, Michael Moorcock didn't subscribe to. Oh, no. Almost none of the British writers subscribed to it. Uh, it, was, it, 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 it was a hegemonic view of science fiction pulp magazines in the 40s. Um, so, yeah, the, everybody has a history that they want to discover. My point is that uh, it's not the same history for everybody, which is kind of a cop-out. I know it sounds like everybody has to have their own canon. I think if everybody reads into the past and finds that there are novels that overlap with other people's canons, if there were any way of doing this, then that amount of overlap, if you, if you get... People who want to find out, okay, what's the history of genderqueer writing in science fiction? I don't know what it is. I suspect that Theodore Sturgeon is part of it. I suspect if you read further back, maybe Virginia Woolf's Orlando is part of it. And if you get that group of readers and another group of readers who want to read this aspect of the history of science fiction and a third group of readers who want to read this, at some point you put them, have them put all their lists together and see what the overlap is of all those lists, mm. of all the subcommunities. Then you might have a canon, but I don't think any of us have any idea what it would look like. No. That seems like a good spot to leave it. You don't need a canon. We've been talking about it for an hour. We'll try and leave it yeah. for another year before we come back to it. If, if anybody has a solution to the problem, uh, drop us uh, one. A single tweet will do. <laughs> okay. Two things. First of all, I, I was amused this week because I asked a couple of writers to send me some cover text for novellas that they're that I'm uh -huh. doing for Tor. And one of them added this as, as part of the description. Tell me, would you pick up this book? A must for fans of Catch-22, All the President's Men, and the Book of Revelation. Okay, that's the sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to get me started on the, uh, the, 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 the formula that every publicist uses, X meets Y. Uh, you know, yeah. Catch, catch, catch. Twenty-two meets. I don't know. Uh, Harry Potter. No, actually, here's uh, the thing. Can you guess who it is? No, I couldn't. Because when I tell you, you'll you'll see it, right? I mean, who would you see would write something? Who would you think would write something that would come across, okay, across say that, as? Say that, say that again. Give me the mix. Catch twenty-two, 
All the mm-hmm. President's Men and the Book of Revelation. Wow. Okay. My first thought would have been Lavi Tidar, but that's not going to be it. And it's not going to be Parker. None. Well, okay. Who is it? KJ Parker. I did say Parker. Yeah, Parker. Of yeah. I, okay. Um. <laughs> I have to admit, I laughed when I read, I read the, that, that line at, at the end of the description. They're like, da da da, a must for. And you're going, really? That's for. Yeah. Like, okay. We've got like four minutes left. We're going to wind this up on time. Boof. First thing, uh-huh. be reading anything good? I had been reading a, a, a selection, a retrospective collection of short stories by Christopher Priest, which oh. is very interesting because not rec- not long ago I read a retrospective collection by M. John Harrison, and it's interesting. It's interesting to see two writers who had parallel careers, both beginning toward the end of the New Wave, and their fiction isn't really comparable at all in many ways. <laughs> is this um, episodes the, the one that came out episodes. earlier in the year or Ep- last year? Episodes came out last year apparently as an ebook in England, and now is being published as a as, a print book, as a paperback, as, and and the hardcover uh, in in twenty twenty. So it's it's an odd it's an odd uh, kind of history. Who's publishing it? Um, I want to say Golanks, but I probably okay. should uh, check that out. Okay. Uh, and uh, the, the other thing I've been thinking about uh, is. Uh, well, uh, things that I read a while ago and have been trying to write about, and we'll mm-hmm. have to talk about these later on. I do want to talk about um, Alex Harrow's Once and Future Witches because it's just I like so delightful. I know. We, we, we and, do. We need to talk about that. Uh, we need to talk to Alex. We've been talking about getting talk- Alex and Stan and some other people on the podcast, and we have to. Right. And we'll we need to next. find out. Uh, well... As we move into the fall, and as books which were supposed to be published in the spring actually get published in the fall, um, then we'll we'll have to start uh, bringing some guests on for more than in, in ten or twenty minutes. Because certainly, as uh, I yeah, I've got some candidates. Let's 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 do that. I've I've got lots of candidates as well, and and there are interesting people that we've all talked to. I'm sure you've had the same experience that I have. As much as I enjoy the ten to twenty minute uh, short discussions. They always feel truncated. They always feel like I really want to go on and, um, and, and, and have a full podcast with this person. We have a lot of really interesting and articulate people in this field, mm. and we have to get through them all before we die. All of them. Everybody. If you're listening, we're probably coming for you. Yeah, we're coming for you next. You're on our list. <laughs> and hopefully... If you're listening, you've been enjoying the podcast and you'll tell other people and you know, you'll do those things that we always forget to ask people to do, like rate us on iTunes or on your podcasty thing and yeah, and retweet it and tell people it exists because, you know, it salves our ego to, to think that people are actually listening when we waffle like this. Yes. But anyway, I guess anyway, for now. Until, until, until the next time when the two of us are together or the next times when individually we're talking with friends. This has been the Cood Street Podcast. It definitely has, Ollie.